the weather forecasts are coming in and there's this weird thing called a bomb cyclone coming towards the state and oh in addition um, there's record uh, snowpack up in north and south dakota in my first two months of office i watched my hometown that i was born and raised in be flooded for the first time in the town's history Yeah, um, so with Nebraska being a mainly rural state, what actions are you guys taking as the state senators to help farmers with the effects of climate change? The biggest hurdles I see in the ag community right now are one property taxes. That is the most pressing issue for our ag community right now, bar none. I care more about my people's livelihoods and their ability to get to work and travel and live their lives than I do about habitat management. So do you think property taxes are a worse issue than climate change or? Given that farm bankruptcies are spiking and farmer suicide rates are spiking, yes. Right. Okay. The weather forecasts are coming in and there's this weird thing called a bomb cyclone coming towards the state. We faced a crisis in March of 2019, the likes of which this state has never seen before, and I hope we never have to see again. In my first two months of office, I watched my hometown that I was born and raised in be flooded for the first time in the town's history. The biggest hurdles I see in the ag community right now are one property taxes. That is the most pressing issue for our ag community right now, bar none. What's up, everyone? Thanks for stopping by episode four of the State of Awareness. Uh, my name is Will Copper, and I'm going to be the host today with my boy Dylan Morris. What's up, Dylan? Hey, everybody. How's it going? I got Dylan on the phone call um, again today. Uh, haven't been able to get him in the studio or my house. You should we can call it not my studio, <laughs> but hopefully we can get him live in the studio in the future. Yeah, whenever that happens, it'll probably be a lot better quality. Yeah, definitely. So uh, today, you know, that intro that I just gave you guys, that was uh, some local politics for you. Um, a few weeks ago, Turning Point USA, um, they're like a conservative uh, group that is trying to inspire like college students, young college conservatives to kind of, you know, unify and uh, get together on the same page. And they had a forum that invited some young state senators over and... Uh, from Nebraska, and I decided to go and ask a few questions and, you know, get involved in the process and see what they had to say about some some important issues. Um, we got, <laughs> we got, that's, that's what we're going to cover today for local politics, and then we're going to move on uh, later to national politics. We're going to be talking about the uh, Kurds and the Turks issue going on in northern Syria. That's going to be some good shit, right, Dylan? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, after that, we're going to move on to this uh, new workplace transformation uh, plan that President, future President Bernie Sanders <laughs> uh, came out with yeah, today. Yeah, we only hope. 
Right. Yeah, we can only hope uh, that he's going to be the president. But yeah, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to uh, talk about why it's important to elect Bernie Sanders uh, for president in 2020. But you know, the first thing I want to touch up on is we'll go over the local politics. So, Dylan, let me ask you. You listened to the uh, the full audio. We're going to post it here for everyone else to listen to. Um, so we'll do that right now. Yeah. Um, so with Nebraska being a mainly rural state, what actions are you guys taking as a state senators to help farmers with the effects of climate change? So I'm a rural senator and I'm a young rural senator. So obviously ag and the future of ag is at the forefront of what I care about. Um, and I'm also from a district that has seen an extreme natural disaster in this year, uh, the costliest and most widespread natural disaster to hit not only District 1, but to hit Nebraska. And the biggest hurdles I see in the ag community right now are one, property taxes. Um, that is the most pressing issue for ag community right now, bar none. We have farmers who will call into my office who are third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation farmers in tears or nearly in tears trying to explain to their senator how they can't afford to keep the family farm open anymore because they're getting taxed to death. To me, that's the most pressing issue facing our ag community right now. Um, second to that is getting recovered after natural disasters, which do happen in Nebraska. Um, this year's flood, we saw levees fail. Um, this was uh, wetter than normal year, which uh, those who support climate change, it's actually the opposite of what should be happening. Um, if we're following the cookie cutter model for climate change, supposedly the Midwest should be getting drier. Instead, we had a very wet and snowy winter, which led to runoffs uh, upstream down the Missouri River Basin, and we also had a blizzard come through in March, which triggered runoff that flooded a lot of our state, including a lot of my district. So getting our land back up to speed and ensuring that the Corps of Engineers um, is prioritizing flood control and not maintaining itchy algae or the pallid sturgeon. I care more about my people's livelihoods and their ability to get to work and travel and live their lives than I do about habitat management. Um, so those are the two biggest hurdles I see to ag right now. You can take that with climate change however you'd like. <laughs> Um, but that's my take on it. So you think property taxes are a worse issue than climate change or? Given that farm bankruptcies are spiking and farmer suicide rates are spiking, yes. Right. Okay. I, 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 want your, I think it's a good question to ask too. Uh, so I appreciate the question. I think sometimes we have to initially ask ourselves, what role do you think the government plays in climate change and what role do you think they should have in affecting people's lives? You know, I mean, because that's what mm -hmm. government does, either fortunately or not, right. to, um, to address climate change, mm -hmm. whether we feel like it should be on more an individual basis and personal responsibility, right. and then as a group we kind of get together and kind of make some of those decisions, or we should have government like that make those decisions for us. I always, in my, in my viewpoint, I always like the idea of giving the power to the people to create change versus the government doing it first. Mm -hmm. And I think we can still do that as individually. I, I, I agree. Um, I think a way that we could deal with it without affecting the working class is, uh, here's an interesting stat for you guys, 100 companies commit 70% of all emissions. So we could make taxes on corporations as opposing to the doing it on the working class. So there are ways to do it that doesn't affect the working class and it can only affect large corporations as they are the main contributors to climate change. So there are there are ways to do it. My, my favorite part of that entire clip is the uh, 11 second gap it took them to decide who was going to answer my question. <laughs> right. They just don't know how to do it. Yeah, I mean, so that question um, was answered by Julie Slama. She is the state senator from District 1. I think that's like in the Bellevue area. But if you noticed, you know, the thing about what they were saying is they were touching up on really important issues. Right, Dylan? Like they're talking about the flooding and things like that. 
Yeah, definitely. And uh, what's interesting in that clip is uh, she's talking about property taxes being one of the major regions for farmer suicides and why there's disasters in her community. But later on in the conversation, she talks about all these historic disasters happening because of changes in the climate. But she kind of mitigates the consequences of climate change. It's really hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of insulting that, you know, she's using climate change as like a uh, as like a political stunt to kind of like get people riled up. And, you know, we're all on the same page here. Like farms underwater is bad for everyone, not only as the farmer, but for consumers. It makes prices go up. It, it, it messes with everything. So we acknowledge that there's an issue. And, you know, you have an opportunity to be a young conservative in an era where news and facts are distorted by the media and stand up and say what is actually causing those high suicide rates, you know, what's actually causing um, farmers prices to go up, you know, like, and it's just kind of insulting. Yeah, most definitely because there can be two issues at once. Yeah. Property taxes could be too high, but the underlying problem for farmers is climate change because if the climate doesn't align with the watering season, then you're going to have historic droughts and you're not going to be able to have your plants grow. And then on the flip side, which is being experienced in Kansas, it can be a historic drought and then historic flooding where you have planted seeds. And then when it floods, it results in seed rot because you have so much water and it doesn't actually have the capacity to grow because it's rotting in the ground because of how much moisture there is. So it, it could be taxes, but the core of the problem is that this climate change is making it unreasonable, unviable to actually plant and harvest whatever these farmers are planting and harvesting for their income. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I remember, you know, we talk about the issues that farming has a lot in Kansas. And the reason why you're so knowledgeable on the farming crisis in Kansas is because you currently live in Kansas, right? You're in Wichita? Yeah, Wichita, Kansas. Yeah. And what do you what do you do down there in Wichita? So uh, I work with the government to assess the risk in banks and then offer corrective uh, feedback for them so they don't essentially screw consumers or run their bank in an unreasonable, unethical fashion. So the reason why I would know more about farms uh, in that capacity is because a lot of the loans that people are making are agricultural loans because the economies down here result a lot on corn, soybeans, cattle, etc. Yeah, I mean, would you say that that sounds a lot like Nebraska too? Oh yeah, most definitely. Actually, we get regional updates for the economics of our area, and Nebraska is definitely included in that. Uh, it, it's South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas. That's typically the region that I uh, encompass in my current capacity. I mean, that's why I have you on uh, this show, because you're a very knowledgeable person. You can give me the finances behind what's going on and the effects of, you know, any issue that I can relate. We, I could ask you about medical costs and how it relates to the uh, economy and finance, climate change and everything. So I wanted everyone to kind of know what you do and why I value your opinion so much. You're not just some like random person. You're actually in this. You you work uh, around it and you see it and you see the effects. You see the people and the banks and how it affects right. the economy. So yeah. yeah, I would definitely say that I'm not any expert, but yeah, 
you, you see these loans and when they go underwater and you see the reasoning behind it. And it really is because of climate change or tariffs that are happening. Um, and, you, you know, it makes it very real and it solidifies the reason and the real world application of what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, and, and also I remember there was something that you mentioned. So, you know, the state senator mentioned um, that you know, farmers are coming to her office crying and things like that. And I wanted to ask, do you think that has anything to do with like corporate farming as well? Do you think that corporate farms are kind of <laughs> destroying uh, small family owned farms in Nebraska or any rural areas around the Midwest? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, one of the things that many progressives and even some Republicans have pointed out with the farm bill is that they disproportionately go to multinational farms these larger farms like Monsanto. So these smaller middle-income family farms, they're not getting the resources that I think the general population thinks that they're getting. So when we talk about the adverse effects of external factors affecting these farmers, it's not mitigated through these subsidiaries provided by the government. It is strictly going to the 1%. As I don't want to go towards that talking point, uh, it's hard not to because it – Really goes throughout our entire life. Yeah, even in farming, these monies go to the larger farms. It doesn't benefit the middle class. It doesn't benefit the lower class. It benefits the 1%, uh, almost as every single thing that we do in our society does. It goes to the upper class, and everyone else is just screwed. Well, I mean, you know, the main reason why I wanted to include this um, in the podcast I don't. I don't want to come off as like I'm attacking uh, Julie Salama. She is a wonderful young state senator who is a graduate from Yale. I have a lot of respect for her grind and her hustle. I just I want to reach her, and I want people in our area to know that our state senators they can make a change and they can fix a lot of issues that we experience in our everyday lives, and they're deciding to move away from the actual issue and beat around the bush and do the interests of whoever's donating to their campaigns or whoever is influencing them to say these things. Look, the evidence is here. I like to put facts over feelings. They mentioned this a bunch of times in that forum that the left loves to put their facts over feelings. Well, I just wanted to say the facts are that climate change is contributing to the farms being underwater. And to say that property taxes is the main issue and the main concern right now and you do not care about habitat management is insulting to every single person that lives in this country and in the world because climate change affects every single one of us. Well, and I think you can, yeah, I mean, I mean, you can be respectful, but still point out the inconsistencies and like asinine belief that they have. I mean, she talks about herself coming into the legislature in 2019 and she talks about there being record snow, uh, a bomb cyclone heading yeah. towards her community and stuff and also historic flooding in her community saying that she had to take on an unprecedented crisis and that really showed her leadership abilities. But then at the same time, she doesn't talk about that being the leading cause for all of this suffering. Like you can point out that those two things don't reconcile. You can't talk about how you had this enormous leadership taking on this crisis and then say, oh, but actually it wasn't a crisis in an indirect, a roundabout way. So I, I think I right. think you're right by saying that uh, we, we have to respect these people. But at the same time, we can point out like, yo, this is kind of bullshit the way that you're saying this. This doesn't 
makes sense with what you just said. It really, like I said, it it, it just offends me because it, these are real issues and we need to take care of them immediately and we don't have time to beat around the bush. And um, I just wanted to say I respect those senators for coming out and engaging in conversation. I only asked one question because I didn't want to seem like a heckler, but um, for my for my listeners that are listening to this, follow the Facebook page and 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 look out for when I'm letting you guys know when there's when these forums are going on. I want people to go to these. We all need to be going and start asking questions to these people that are representing us in our state because they do make a difference in our lives. Whether you agree with that or not, they do. So um that is the first part of the some of the clips I wanted to talk about. But there's another thing I want to transition to about this forum that was it was mentioned like for like 10 seconds, you would say, Dylan? Yeah, very, very briefly. They, they uh, incite uh, Senator Ernie Chambers name and then uh, an interaction that they had and they just slightly mentioned this and brushed by it. So. Dylan, explain to the audience what LB399 is. Yeah, so LB399 is setting the education standards that schools have to meet in their curriculums. And reading through the bill, it's only six pages, not very long, doesn't really include any uh, way to enforce or an active plan, but it just sets the actual standards that need to be met. And throughout the entire bill, it just mentions things about uh, being patriotic, knowing the liberties given to us from those who came before us, respecting the plan, excuse me, flag. Uh, and then that that's really it. It just says that in a bunch of different rep- repetition in different ways. Um, and I would say that the most dangerous, scary thing about it is that it doesn't talk about the atrocities that the United States has been involved in. Uh, or anything that we've done that's negative at all. And I think that in order to have people grow up in a civilized society, they need to know the bad things that their country have done. At minimum, you should anticipate these kids be taught about slavery, the destruction of native lands and native people. And I mean, if I had it my way, the U.S. intervention around the world, because we have done a lot of bad things and we need to know what we've done so we can learn from the past. You know, it's that old homage that says, if you don't know the past, it's going to repeat itself. And so having these educational standards just completely omit the atrocities that we've been involved in and just talk about patriotism and the flag, it's just set to have more nationalism and uh, willing ignorance. Well, you know, so let me try and um, break it down a little bit simpler for the the audience. So LB399 basically is a local state legislation that is going to be voted on. And then if that gets approved, then the school board would then have to implement this, uh, 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 basically, this education plan. So basically, they're going to alter the way that we currently teach history, um, economics, anything really that involves school. And basically, this bill is going to be at the, the foundation of how teachers have to go about their um, their planning for, for the history lesson for that day or for that semester. And... The reason why I find this one really important is because I don't know if I've mentioned before, but I am currently going to school to be an educator. I want to be a high school teacher and teach social sciences, so like history and things like that. And 
I believe when I was in high school, the type of history teachers or the type of economics teachers that I had weren't really that good. And I felt like that the things that I know today, they were incorrect about learning back then. So I personally wanted to become a teacher so I could uh, give my perspective on history and give, you know, a different perspective on history rather than what old school, hardcore old white people, you know, basically gave the standard for us back in the 80s and 90s that we haven't updated. But this new bill that they're introducing is just going to put more emphasis on that good old fashioned, just a USA. It did everything right in the world. We've never done anything wrong in the world. Capitalism is a perfect system. Communism is the worst system in the world. America's always been right. We've never been wrong. You know, like, and that is just what is wrong with like the education system that we have today because it's not true. The U.S. education system has been propag- been propagandized. I think is that a word, Dylan? Propagandized. Um, uh, I mean, sounds good to me. I know. What yeah, you're it's been you know it's been embedded into our brains that we are the saviors of the world. We have the perfect system in the world, and when we're spreading democracy, it's happening from the purest forms of our hearts, and it's just not true. And that's why I want to be a teacher because I want to give the alternate, um, alternative perspective to these atrocities that we have done in our history. And this bill is against the first amendment and it is against like the values of the rest of the world. And it only has the interest of a select few that want to have an alternate view of how we're going to, you know, teach our kids. So it just doesn't, I don't agree with it at all. And Dylan, do you think some people might say, I don't really think there's a problem with, you know, teaching kids about the positive things that America has done, which that's a, that's true, right? There's nothing wrong with that. No, I don't think there's a problem with that at all. Yeah, but just give the full story. You know, if you're listening to an argument, you don't want to just hear one side or hear one aspect of it without without having the larger picture. Um, yeah, so if the United States has done some good things, like uh, let, let me know the bad things as well so I can have an objective way to weigh good versus bad and determine like, oh, so is this a force that we want to continue doing in the future? Or, hey, maybe how do we get rid of these bad things and make sure we emphasize the strong and good things that we've done going forward? Um, Mm. Yeah. And I don't think that's pretty unreasonable to ask. I mean, you know, I never knew that there was this much politics behind uh, when it comes to education, honestly, you know, they want to be so involved in telling teachers on what they should be teaching, but they don't want to fucking pay them a salary that they deserve, but they want to talk about what they can teach all they want, you know, but when it comes to paying them, they're like, Oh no, can't have too much government involved. That's way, you know, way too much. This right. is mind blowing to me. Yeah. I mean, th- they can set the general rules and then if they know what they're going to basically say, then yeah. That's all that they need to know, and then let's cut their salaries, et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to touch on what you're saying about uh, the idea of people just kind of giving us propaganda as we were growing up, because the opposite is normally said, right, that these liberal schools are brainwashing our kids. And my experience uh, in high school and college, I've never had that other than, like, criminal justice, and it was not even really liberal. It was like a centrist ideology. I I remember in college specifically, I asked about minimum wage uh, in relation to like supply and demand curves. I got called a communist 
So, I mean, I, I've never had that myth be true in my experience. And I know in our high school that you and I both went to, it was also not true. So mm-hmm. it's usually the opposite. Well, yeah, see, that's what I never understood because if you go on to any right-wing YouTube channel, they will preach like crazy that the school system is corrupting kids' minds and they're being pro-communism and stuff like that. And they're absolutely incorrect. Let me tell you that because I am about halfway done with my college degree and I have not had one teacher that was pro-communism or socialism. Not one. And I've gotten into uh, into arguments with them, pushing them to the left because of how incorrect they are. So don't – this whole – this fake news bullshit that uh, the right-wing – um, propaganda machines are pushing out that the uh, education system is corrupting young kids' minds. It's completely, it's completely false, and, and and don't fall, don't fall for it because it's just completely false. That was a very good point, Dylan. Yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because I hear it almost every single time I hear anything about education, and it's completely not true. The whole th- that whole situation with you know them thinking that schools make you more liberal or shit just pisses me off it really pisses me off because it's just not true and whoever falls for that needs to open their eyes a little bit more and think a little bit more critically about what you're actually being taught because liberals democrat (laughs) mainstream democrats and republicans they all agree with each other on fucking war so i don't know i don't you know like in 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 even mainstream Democrats love Ronald oh, Reagan, yeah. and and you know what I'm saying. Like so, there's there's they all are a part of the same propaganda machine. So I don't know why they're acting like liberal Harvard like makes you more liberal. Are you kidding me? Harvard's like one of the most corrupt for profit colleges in the country. Fuck Harvard. Also, they're not a yeah. Go ahead. I, I don't know a lot about it, but I was reading this headline and. and- briefly looked at this article about it, talking about the Harvard Industrial Complex, talking about how graduates are, like, the most militant people when it comes to, like, increasing the military budget and having interventionism. I don't really know enough to talk about that right now. But, yeah, just to talk to your point, uh, yeah, Democrats, Republicans largely agree on the corporate greed, uh, having that concentration of wealth. And, yeah, the United States should be the dominant presence in the world and should overthrow regimes that should be uh, necessary to make sure that those countries align with our interest. I mean, it's not about it's not about protecting people. It's not about uh, providing them with democracy. It's about providing a, st- a country and a world that all works with our system that we have of exploitation of worker and 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 boss. So that is basically what I, you know. So, so I know that, that, that was a good segue to move on because I know what we're talking about next. But I did want to underscore and bring it back to the point. Um, that perfectly underlines also why it's important that we talk about the bad things in the United States. Because if you don't, you have these Democrats and Republicans who are saying, yes, we need interventionism and we need to overthrow these governments to make sure that the United States is given what it deserves. But uh, that was all I wanted to say on that. Yeah, I mean, under under this 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 bill, LB three nine nine. Under this bill, forty thirty years from now, when we're learning about the Afghan war, it could it'll be seen as a positive. It won't be seen yeah, as be as a, a disaster. Whitewash. It won't be seen as wasting trillions of dollars and killing 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of innocent people and thousands of U.S. troops. It won't be seen like that. It's going to be seen as a nation um, um, coming to the calling after we were attacked by a terrorist organization on 9-11 and perseverance for 17, 20 fucking years, man. That's how they're going to fucking interpret this shit. And I, I'm telling you guys now, if I'm a teacher, that will not happen under my, um, under my, no. I guess my teaching, uh, life, life, uh, span. Yeah, your tenure yeah, or whatever. Yeah, tenure, whatever the fuck you want to call it. All, all, all you gotta, all you gotta do when someone brings up Iraq or Afghanistan is just say, what did those countries have to do with 9-11? Exactly. They had nothing. The only argument you could give me is Afghanistan was hoarding Al Qaeda uh, people, which that's fine. But if that's the case, why didn't we ever go in and attack Saudi Arabia? Oh, don't talk about that. They they give us all that money and shit for oil and. Right. I mean, yeah, you're right, Dylan. I don't want to get it too off the point. LB three nine nine is bad because it's going to control what we can teach um, as teachers, and I absolutely am against that. And, um, I will never support, um, you know, that type of nationalistic, uh, control from our government, the government telling what I can and cannot teach to, um, students that's too nationalistic for me. That's too fascist, fascistic behavior for me. And I won't participate in it. So hopefully (laughs) that shit does not pass. Um, I guess we can move. I mean, all they need to do is to like rough out the edges. No, you're fine. I mean, just take out the stuff that just makes it so prone to nationalism. Just say, teach people about the general history that led to the civil rights movement, that led to uh, the right to vote, the secession from Great Britain to be a colony. But you also need to have in there, teach about the adjunct slavery, the Trail of Tears, the eradication of native lands and native people, and yeah, so I mean, you have to set curriculums to make sure that people have the general education that they need to participate in a democratic society, but you need to make sure that that's even-handed so they have all of the information they need to process the history and to process what they will be presented with going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned that – we'll use this as a transition here. So you mentioned um, the importance of knowing about how horrible our foreign policy has been in the past. Um, you want to talk about right. the hor- the uh, um, everything we've done in Central America, whether it's the Bay of Pigs uh, with with Cuba and JFK, or the Vietnam War, or you want to update it up to today time. Yeah, overthrowing Honduras during Obama and Hillary Clinton's tenure. Yeah, um, um, or or so, so yeah, Yemen the, with yeah, exactly. Yeah, you could literally point to a map, and there's somehow United States foreign policy has had a negative effect on it. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to bring that up to what's going on in Syria right now. So it's pretty big on the news. Right. Um, what's going on in Syria. So to give the audience my uh, dumbed down version of it, because to be honest, I am not that in detail what's going on there. But here's basically my gist of it. So northern Syria is a hot spot in the Middle East right now. Um, uh, the way you could describe it is there is a three or four way civil war going on right now between the Syrian actual government, which is ruled by Assad. He's a, he's a dictator there. Um, you have ISIS there who is also trying to overthrow the Assad government. They're strong in Syria. You have the Kurds also that are fighting against ISIS and the uh, uh, Assad government. Is that correct so far, Dylan? Yeah. Uh, just to kind of put uh, like a side comment on that. 
the quagmire has so many parties and it's very hard to delineate which ones are which. And the support that the United States had for the Kurds was primarily because that's one of the most identifiable groups that we could uh, see was actually going against the extremists. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is, is out of those three people out of Assad and Syria, uh, ISIS and the Kurds, America's best interest is with siding with the Kurds, correct? Uh, correct. There's a lot more other players like Iran, Saudi Arabia, and other uh, third parties. But yes, out of the people that you had mentioned, and out of the allies in the area in general, the Kurds are probably our most reliable ally. Okay. And basically, the Kurd has the Kurds have been our number one ally in fighting ISIS, also in northern Syria. I know that's I don't know I read that somewhere that they had, like there's been no one. I think next I think right next to us is the highest you know the the, the most about amount of resources and being used that's been putting the most stop on ISIS over there. So that's good. I, uh, it's kind of a small point. I'll get back on main topic here. I I, I am an anti-war person. Um, I think peace is something that we can all do. I think you can solve way more issues with a pen stroke rather than dropping a bomb. I think Dylan would agree with that as well. Um, yep, most definitely. But I do want to say that ISIS is, ISIS is a legit bad guy organization. They are a disgusting organization that not only are they actual terrorists, but they, are, they, they will go into ancient areas on Earth and on our planet and they literally will destroy ancient monuments just because it's against, you know, what they believe. Right. So I actually think that we might have a little bit of disagreement here. Uh, not obviously that ISIS is bad. Yeah, uh, no shit, they're bad. I uh, just wanted to say that because it sounded like I was not saying that. But um, I see the instability uh, resulting in more ISIS troops if we would draw, just because, like, Turkey's only purpose is to really – uh, decimate the Kurds and that instability from those two people fighting will lead to a power vacuum rather than uh, the, the us leaving resulting in ISIS just because the Kurds have been our main ally in doing so. I largely think that the numbers of ISIS have been defeated. Right. Yeah. That I was going to get more into that. I was just kind of just kind of um, saying a brief point that um yeah, not to get confused because I honestly do – I think that there needs to be some sort of military action against ISIS, not just done by obviously the United States. I think there needs to be a multi-country okay, you know, coalition, even resources you know, ran with no um, corpor corporation kind of interest. You know what I'm saying? Just protecting um, world historical artifacts and things like that from them because they are honestly going around destroying them. But – ISIS is honestly a horrible group, and when it comes to my peace aspect, I do support military action against them. But that's completely separate. Um, uh, but the Kurds, right, they are the our number one ally when it comes to defeating ISIS. And so what's going on now is um, the Trump administration uh, withdrew, what was it, about, uh, I mean, I don't know how many troops, but they withdrew all the, the U.S. support that we had for the Kurds in northern Syria. And... Now, here's where it gets kind of confusing. We have those three uh, parties that I mentioned, Assad, ISIS, and the Kurds. Now, Turkey, which borders Syria on the on the northern border, 
where the Kurds are currently fighting ISIS up there. Turkey has interest in taking over that land, right, Dylan? Because some yep. sort of things like they have history in their past about that land. Yeah, so there's also a regional conflict with the Kurds, uh, who are largely in northern Iraq, um, and they've constantly been at odds with uh, Turkey and Turkey's president, uh, Erdogan. And so they really want to have the opportunity to just push them back and kill as many Kurds as possible. The, Tur- the Turks basically have ge- they have genocide on their agenda for the Kurds. And the reason why this one is a difficult situation to talk about as an anti-interventionalist, a uh, person that believes in peace, is because I think that withdrawing all of our troops from there is a bad idea. Because it's going to just lead to more instability in the area, which is going to come back and bite all of us back in the ass. Wouldn't you say, Dylan? Yeah, so as you said, this one's hard as someone who is an anti-interventionist. I I don't know. I think that we could withdraw fully, but I think that we need to ensure that the Turks aren't decimating the Kurds. And I think that there's uh, ways for us to do that, like putting tariffs on them. Um, holding hostage the aid that we give them. At a low point, we give them right now $112 million. I know that seems like a drop in the budget for a military, but for Turkey, that could be a large percent of their GDP. Like I said, that's a low point. At our highest, we've given them 300 to $500 million. So I think that we could also do that. We could also threaten them with economic sanctions if they do try to attack the Kurds. So in Largely, I do think that we could remove the majority, if not all, our forces, but it needs to be tied to don't touch these people, don't commit genocide, or you will suffer the economic consequences. Right. I mean, my personal, um, what I would do if I was commander in chief, if I was the president, um, it would be it would be similar to what you said. I would withdraw my troops. I would say Americans are coming home, and what we're going to do is are all the surrounding countries that are interested in what's going on over here, like the UK, you have France, Germany, right? We're all going to form a coalition. We're going to open up an embassy in the middle of this area, and we're going to say, look, Turkey, if you want to come over here and you're going to disrupt, you're going to kill Americans, you're going to kill Germans, you're going to kill, you know, England what do they call Englanders? I don't know what the fuck you call them. Uh, Europeans. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You're, if you're going to kill people for this area, you're going to have to kill us and that's going to cause an issue. So don't you kind of think that could be some sort of like a buffer in between to keep peace in that area? Right. Most definitely. But I think that kind of speaks to a even broader issue is the United Nations and international coalitions alone don't really carry a lot of weight. Because, I mean, the United Nations finds human right abuses all the time. They found the United States being in violation of human right abuses in, uh, in Guantanamo Bay, for example. But, you know, nothing happens with that because the United Nations doesn't have the, the teeth to really do anything about it. No, United Nations is like a fake – it's like a fake law enforcement that's just there to kind of – uh, provide like a buffer to make sure people don't do things that are too bad, you know? <laughs> Right. I mean, and then when bad things happen, yeah, nothing really happens. They can find you guilty of something, but do you actually suffer consequences if you're a world power? No. Yes. I mean, you know, this is why I love talking with you because you spark things in my head. What you, when you mentioned um, that 
uh, the UN, the UN or NATO or whatever, they don't really do anything whenever things are going wrong to prevent, you know, these issues from getting worse. I, I wish I did the research before this so I could give you more precise examples, but I, I was taking a U.S. history class and we were talking mm-hmm. about how they formed uh, like all of these United Nations type things back then to prevent a world war from happening. And the United Nations literally weren't enforcing anything. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So they're like, what was the point for this coalition of these major countries to be in enforcement to prevent things from happening so we don't hit another world war? They didn't do anything. The exact same thing is happening today. These countries like Saudi Arabia, the United States, China, every single we're all doing things that are against international law and no one's being held accountable. And these poor countries are starting to destabilize. And when the poor countries destabilize, we go to fucking war read a history book and you can see that yeah definitely well to use the palestinian example the palestinians tried to enter the international uh court to find israel uh, guilty of war crimes for having illegal settlements in the gaza strip and when that happened we had uh, elizabeth warren marco rubio many other senators write a letter to the united nations and the president saying we will not uh respond to any sort of inquiry against the United States or Israel. Uh, Israel has the right to exist, as it does, but, you know, that's the talking point to always diminish the war crimes perpetrated against Palestinians. And basically just saying, hey, if the Palestinians are entered into the international court, then we will boycott the international court. And, you know, that was a little bit ago during uh, Obama's uh, presidency, but, you know, uh, Donald Trump has recently pulled out from the international court, and that just kind of reinforces that idea of, yes, the United States will not be held accountable if we're found guilty of war crimes along with Israel. I mean, the entire international community except us, Israel, and I think uh, either Niger or one of those similar countries voted for the recognition of Jerusalem as their capital. And that's because those are the people who are reliant on the United States for money. And if we say something, it's it's done. You know, Jerusalem was condemned as the capital by every other country, and it was still recognized because the United States said, yes, this is the capital now. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to do an episode soon on Palestine and Israel. Yeah, I didn't mean to get us off track, but it just made me think about the United Nations and how they're enforcement isn't actually a real exactly i mean yeah i can i could go on probably for two hours talking about how what's going on today i can reflect it back to uh, history and how it and what we're doing and what's going on around the world is going to lead to another major conflict that's up and coming currently but i don't want to get too off subject um let's try and i'll try and uh bring it back we were so we were talking about um how trump withdrew Um, our troops from northern Syria. So now northern Syria, which was an area where ISIS was actually pretty much defeated, um, is going to probably come back and be stronger. And Turkey has already began bombing and and basically destroying um, that area. I've seen videos on Twitter of like – this old man, he was like crying about how his kid, his his like two kids and his wife was just killed from the Kurds bombing them. So – that is a direct result of us withdrawing our troops there with no plan. That is why you have to have some sort of coalition plan to maintain the peace in these areas because they're destabilized. They're poor and they're desperate. And when you're poor and desperate, this is what happens. 
And to give the, the reasoning behind why that leads to terrorism, because that video that you're referring to, I saw the exact same thing. When those people lose their children, they don't have anywhere to go and they want vengeance. You know, why? Of course you would want to. I mean, your kids are killed by an intervening force. So if you have the Turkish military doing that, you're going to be like, oh, I have this anti-Turkish sentiment now. I'm going to join the ranks to fight against them. Exactly. And what happens is that that happens to all of these citizens. And that's why there's these extremist groups that pop up when there's violence. Yeah. And then that's exactly Dylan. I love you, man. That's exactly what the issue is. That's what happens. The United States goes in. It, it, it tries to uh, topple the government that's there. They implement a plan that the people don't like. Things get desperate. People get poor. They start fighting with each other, so they turn to radicalism, and they get radicalized. All those people that just got destabilized from us withdrawing from northern Syria, they're getting attacked by the Turks, they're going to join ISIS. Guarantee it. They're going to join ISIS, they're, or they're going to be— or, or exponentially more likely yeah, or the or, or, or they're going to become refugees. You know, and then and then and then then you're gonna tell me it's not yeah. our responsibility after we destabilized a fucking area and then just left. Like we're not gonna be able to take them in when it's literally direct fault. To to make this all interconnected, yes, what you're saying is everything is very connected on an international scale. Because when we destabilize these regions and there's refugees, and then we say, hey, we're gonna reduce the number of refugees that we're coming in. That's just spitting in their face, essentially, because we went into that area. We fucked it up. We fucked up their infrastructure. They don't have their food now. They don't have their water. They don't have public housing. They don't have housing at all. And then we're just saying, hey, go fuck yourselves. We're not taking them in, even though we literally destroyed your country and your community. Everything is interconnected. Yeah, exactly. Everything is interconnected. That's a good Charles the First song. You guys should look it up. Uh, as you're thinking, I just wanted to say, uh, although Trump, quote unquote, pulled people out of Turkey, uh, he also sent 2000 troops to Saudi Arabia. So just want everyone to know, as we are anti-interventionists, one, this is kind of a bad one because it's not resulting in the results that we want. But two, it's not really pulling troops out because he sent 2000 troops to Saudi Arabia for literally no reason whatsoever. Well, no, I wouldn't say it's for no reason. It's because we need to uh, protect Saudi oil interests in the area because our troops well, yeah, are yeah. Saudi Arabia's bitch. And whenever the kingdom tells us to do something, we fucking do it because our government is ran by fucking bitches. Right. I should put an asterisk by that. It was They were sent there to protect economic interest of the elite rather than legitimate military operations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, my brother, someone's dad, someone's uncle is being sent um, overseas just so they can protect uh, Saudi oil interests. I just want you guys to know that, that that's what Trump's doing with your military. So when you guys are all proud that your president is so pro-military, I want you to think about that. So that that's something I take personal. So Man, we'll have to do an episode connecting the Saudi Arabian proxy war in Yemen to the United States. It's pretty easy, but... We'll have to do it sometime just to show the consequences oh, yeah. of our yeah. Well, I, I mentioned I mentioned that in the last episode about Trump's impeachment. Like the the Democrats should be going after him about that kind of shit with like the his hotels and shit and how the Saudi Arabian government is laundering him money that way. 
but that's a different yeah. conversation. You're right. But, um, you know, that's basically the reason I wanted to cover this one. I'll summarize this one up is because, you know, you'll hear me mention all the time that I don't like war. I don't support war. I'm a combat veteran. I'm against war. Um, but there's certain issues where there needs to be a peacekeeping mission there. And I know that the United States and, and, and all their countries are known for being imperialists and things like that. But certain situations require a peacekeeping mission. And this is one of them. And I disagree with Trump's withdrawal from this area. The only reason he did it, if you're the type of person that's asking why he did it, is because he wanted to give the appearance that he's an anti-interventionalist president because he campaigned on it. And it's campaign season. So Trump's in campaign mode. So he's going to start doing and saying things that make it seem like he's a he's a populist, but he's not a populist. He's a conservative and he's a fascist. So don't fall for it this time, guys. Because like Dylan said, he just sent 2,000 troops to Saudi Arabia to protect their their oil interests. So he's not an anti-interventionalist. Yeah. Moving on. Um, I wanted to talk about our main man, Bernie Sanders, and why Bernie. it is important that we get this old man elected as president. Right, Dylan? Most definitely, yeah. This one is a very big plan that he announced. Oh, my gosh, yes. The plan that Bernie Sanders just came out with today, his – um workplace transformation plan is revolutionary there's no there's no candidate that is anywhere close to bernie sanders in this election i don't care what you have to say about certain candidates and their plans and things like that bernie sanders has the most detailed plans that will transform this country when he's president and and dylan i did you want to talk about it some more the the detailed plan about he that he came out with about transforming the uh, workplace yeah, so the plan's called the Corporate Accountability and Democracy Act, and it's basically ensuring employee cooperatives. And so what those are is that workers will be given ownership stakes in their companies. Um, additionally, in the plan, it will reverse major corporate mergers, uh, undo the Trump administration tax cuts, and do a lot of other things that will just be largely beneficial to the general workforce. Uh, just to give you the bottom line economic impact, um, it would impact 56 million workers, more than 22,000 companies in the United States, um, according to two economists, and it will give an additional $5,500 to employees a year, uh, making this uh, kind of an international comparison. The Labor Party in the United Kingdom implemented a plan called the Inclusive Ownership Fund, and that actually resulted in $2,725 per year for workers. There's a lot of different things, but that's generally what the act is doing, giving employees more ownership in the companies that they work for. Yeah, I mean, what you just described is transform it's transformational, man. It, it, it honestly... It makes me so happy that we finally have a politician in the 21st century saying this shit because we have needed a worker-owned economy today than we have ever needed in the history of the world. It is imperative that we get Bernie Sanders elected as president because we need him to transform the way our economy works. It is not working for no one but the top and I know Bernie Sanders, and I know the same people preach this one percentism a lot, but it's true. 
It is true. The reason why you've heard so much of it in the past couple years is because Bernie has brought it to light. And he has exposed what has been going on in this country for decades. The exploitation of the working class. The exploitation of your your grand your grandparents and, and threatening to cut their social security. The exploitation of our military and everything like that. It all boils back to our economic system and the exploitation behind it. And the, the working class families of this country have been getting exploited for decades. 50% of people in this country, I think, make less than 30 $33,000. It's either 50% or higher. I know it's at least 50, but 50% of people make $30,000 or less. That yeah. is terrifying. Yeah, it's pretty insane. And, you know, and, and, if... and go ahead. Okay. Uh, so I was just going to say by decentralizing this economic system and giving more people the ownership in these companies, uh, one, you're going to have more economic benefits, but also you're going to have these communities more protected because if you're in a community and you're enacting some sort of plan for your corporation, then you're going to be more concerned with how it impacts your community as well. So for example, if I, if I am an employee on an existing uh, oil refinery, I'm going to be more concerned with how those pollutants and those emissions adversely impact my community because I live there. Yeah, I mean, so what you did just there is you just connected how worker cooperative owned businesses can help combat the effects of climate change. What do I always say on the show? Uh, 100 companies produce 70% of emissions. And you want to know how you get those um, 100 companies to listen to what the people of the world want? You have them owned by the workers that have to live in those communities that are being affected by climate change. That is how you transform this country. And Bernie's plan, what he just released today, is going to give workers more of a say in the board of directories and what happens on these companies. So they have more of a say what happens with the profits. The workers will have a say if the jobs are going to get shipped overseas to China. The workers will have a say if their jobs are going to get automated or not. So that's why this plan is important, and that is why worker cooperatives are very, very important. And that's why we need to rally behind Bernie Sanders for president. Right. Just to give a general comment, uh, so the idea to actually implement it, because, you know, everyone's always concerned with how does the rubber hit the road. The idea is to require these large companies to contribute 2% of the stocks annually to an employee-controlled fund until the workers control 20% of the company. And then it pays out dividends to those workers. And then to relate to what you're just talking about, if those businesses go overseas or if the bank is, excuse me, if the business is being sold, it gives the workers ability to buy the company if it goes up for sale, if it's closed or if it's moving overseas, because one, it prevents stock buybacks and mergers, but also that they will have the ability to talk about what they want because they'll own 20% of the company and they'll have more money to collectively pool together and buy that company if that is actually going to happen. Well, here's, 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 you know, to give a little bit more substance to what you just said. So under this plan, it says that if a company does outsource their, I mean, if the company does want to shut down their, 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 uh, their corporation and they're going to, instead of just allowing that corporation to sell it, to anyone to like a walmart chain or a chain large corporation company 
um, the workers of that place will have the opportunity to buy that uh, company and, and then turn it into a worker co-op. Right. Why this is important, it's important because this plan will give those people the funds to be able to buy those companies and it'll create more small businesses. For example, in Bernie's plan, it says um, a 500 million U.S. employee ownership bank will be created to provide low interest loan guarantees and technical assistance to workers who want to purchase their own businesses through the establishment of employee stock ownership plans or their so sorry, that kind of is confusing. Employee stock ownership plans is another word for a worker co-op. That's basically what that is. So we'll go with a worker co-op because that's easier to say it that way. So basically that saying is if you want to start a company that is going to be a worker co-op, which means your workers and you, you all own the company in a democratic way, the government will give you low interest guaranteed loans to help you start that business. And this is a small business creator. So if you're a small business person, you should be loving Bernie Sanders right now because this plan will not only encourage more entrepreneurship, but it will create decent wages for those workers as they have a say what happens with the profits. So this plan is revolutionary. It's going to transform how our small businesses are ran and it's going to transform how our large corporations are ran. Are ran. So yeah, if you want to say anything else on that. Yeah, I just want to make it as an underline what you just said about how it would increase entrepreneurship because a lot of people talk about democratic socialism saying that people won't want to work. It desensitizes people who don't want to work and won't lead to innovation and entrepreneurship. But those Bullshit. That, 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 that bank that you're just talking about, um, it will give out low income, excuse me, low interest loans and loan guarantees for people who want to start small businesses. And I want to also add on to that that these banks can have community standards attached to the loan purposes to make sure that any small business or any corporation that's being started or any project that's being funded aligns with the public interest. And that will get away from this crony capitalism and all of this destruction that comes with these selfish corporations and the greed that comes with it. So I just wanted to underscore that, definitely. Exactly. Uh, but also I wanted to talk about just uh, – the like morality and the understanding of how important it is to have a democratic workplace environment. Most of our lives are spent at work. So why wouldn't we want our voices to be heard and have a democracy there rather than have a tyrannical environment where one person's word is law? Uh, if you were to be scrutinized for something or fired under this plan, you could appeal. You could have other people listen to the situation mm. and determine if you could actually be in trouble, you could elect officers to make sure that the work environment is fair and reflective of what you Amazing. want. And also you can give general ideas in the workplace. You know, you don't have to have this system where you go in, you're told something and you're working with no satisfaction. You can have gratification in the workplace under this sort of system. Yeah, man, that... <laughs> What you just said, it, it really inspires me that 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 there is someone out there that has um, a lot of support that supports these ideas. What you just described is how we fix the issue that we have in this country. It's how you fix the inequality that we have. You can you can you can dance around the issue all you want. Uh, I'm gonna put a a, a point. 
2% tax on billionaires or whatever. That's not going to solve anything at the end of the day. We need to fundamentally change the way our workplace is. And until we democratize the workplace environment, nothing is going to change. So until candidates are all on the same page on on this of, of, of turning the workplace into a democracy where the workers decide what happens with the profits, where the workers decide if the jobs are going to get automated or not. Um, I don't care what you have to say. And I feel like this needs to be the standard. Yeah. And to make it interlinked, I mean, domestic isolation, uh, sense of not belonging. I mean, we have a mental health crisis also. So, I mean, if you get this concept of community fulfilled in your workplace or you feel like you're being heard, I feel like that could solve other problems in our society as well. And it makes you really sad to think that other countries are doing this and we've just been missing out on all of these benefits simply because we don't want to consider a different system. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely, um, I'm going to plug one of my favorite, uh, professors I love to talk about, uh, Richard Wolf. He says it's obscene the way our history has treated alternate forms of capitalism. And he says it's a very childish behavior that we engage in when it comes to discussing alternative forms to capitalism. Because over time, capitalism has um, evolved and it's changed to deal with the, the negative effects of a system like capitalism that creates inequalities. They've added social safety nets and things like that. But when you talk about anything that's a new type of system that gives the power to the people and takes it away from corporations. You start getting shouted at. You get called names, and, and it's just it's it's time to start looking at things in black, black and white. And black and white says, yeah, under capitalism, it's not working. Income inequality has never been higher in the United States, and it is right now. Yep, it's it's worse than the gilded age, gilded age, and that was literally the highest ever, except for you know today. I mean, here and here's another thing. So, I wanna I wanted to bring this argument up because you know I I, I I like to hope that I have a diverse audience, and I like to think that I have some maybe uh, people that think the government is bad in every aspect. Which that's okay. I agree that the government can be extremely evil. Yeah. So, your your argument might be the free market will eventually fix you know the negative effects of capitalism, low wages and things like that. You know, people, if your wages are so low, people will stop working for your company. So you're forced to raise it. Or if your company is contributing to climate change, then consumers will start boycotting your company. And that way you start doing the right thing. So the government doesn't need to tell companies to do the right thing. And that argument that people will give it's utopian. It's never going to happen under capitalism because as long as a select few of people own the means of production rather than, rather than the people, those select few people, unless you can convince them <laughs> that that their actions aren't causing uh, harm to our environment or their hoarding of money isn't harming the economy, until you can convince them, nothing is going to change. You can boycott all you want. When oligarchs control our media, they control uh, – fucking research studies they control polls they will trick every single one of you into thinking that what they're doing is not bad so for instance you have a lot of people that are like climate change deniers you want to know where the funding for that science comes from it comes from exxon and 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 fucking shell that's where it comes from so as long as we have these corporations being ran by a board of directories that has one one 
motive on their mind, which is money, we will never see a transformation in this country. You can tax them all you want. You can try and do all this. But until the workers own the means of production, nothing is going to change. And there's nothing that we can do as consumers that's ever going to fix this issue of climate change, of the income inequality that we have to deal with on a regular basis. When you have a select few that are controlling what happens with the profits, what happens with the jobs and things like that. For instance, if workers had more say on the board of directories on what happens with the profits, then we solve the issue of income inequality. We solve the issue of inflation. We solve the issue of, of, of board of directories and, and business owners sending jobs overseas. We solve all those issues if the workers have a say in that process. And I want you guys to understand that that is what we're asking for. That will solve almost every issue that we bring to the table. If the workers have a say in what happens with the means of production, then you will see a political revolution. You will see an economic revolution in this country that represents the working class and not the elite few. This is not a radical idea to put democracy in the workplace. It is not a radical idea to use democracy in the workplace like we use in our everyday lives. We vote for our president. We vote for our state senators. We vote for our congresspeople. But we don't get a vote for who's our boss. We don't get a vote for what happens with the means of production that we helped create with our labor. You know, we practice democracy and we claim to have such a democratized world. But the place where we spend a lot of our time, majority of our time, 40 hours a week, and we have no say there. You're supposed to just punch in, clock in and do your job. Shut the fuck up and do what your boss tells you to do. And then they have the power to send your job over to fucking China if they want to. No, that's not democracy. That is not, a, that is not the country that I want to live in. I want to live in a country where their workers have proper representation on the board of directories. Because for far too long, we have allowed corporations to do what is beneficial to them and their numbers. Stock buybacks, cutting jobs, sending them overseas, um, raising prices to deal with the raising of, of minimum wage because they want to maintain the same profits. Guys, we can solve these issues by a workplace democracy revolution to where the workers own the aspects of the economy, where it works for us where it works for every single one of us and not the elites at the top. Look, they may have created the jobs in the first place, but the workers maintain that job. The workers produce the profits. The workers produce the products and they get nothing to show for it. 50% of families in this country earn $30,000 or less. That's a confirmed fact this time. I looked it up. Thirty. $1,000 or less is what half the country makes. We have a problem. We have a systematic problem. It's fundamental. We have to have a revolution, a political revolution, and get this shit fixed. Now, this is why I've been pressing Bernie Sanders so hard, because there is no other candidate, both Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, whatever, that is pushing for this type of revolution in the workplace. Bernie is literally saying what I'm saying. He believes in this. And if it makes sense to you, you should believe in Bernie Sanders' plan to get this enacted because it will fundamentally change the way our economy works. So if you want to support Bernie Sanders, I recommend going to his website. Um, just go to berniesanders.com. Message me on Facebook if you want to know how to get involved. I know there's a lot you can do. You can do personal time. You can go volunteer. You can knock on doors and call. 
If you don't have time, you can donate your money. $1 counts. I do $6 a month because that's what I can afford. So every month I get a recurring payment for just 6 bucks to help out. Um, that is what Bernie Sanders' campaign is built off of, small dollar donations. So if you have small dollars to give, you know, go ahead and give it up to the man so we can get him in, in the White House so we can implement these plans that will help every single one of us. It's like an investment, you know. But anyways, I digress. I don't want to get too much on my Bernie Sanders soapbox. Um, that's going to wrap up episode four. Uh, I want to thank Dylan again for coming on. Um, I really appreciate your insight, man. I think everyone's going to love what you got to say about this one as well. Yeah, I uh, hope so. Uh, thanks for having me on. We were kind of all over the place for the international stuff, so sorry about that. I kind of brought in a lot. But, yeah, I thought it was a really good episode, and I appreciate you having me. No problem, Dylan. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. So now I'm going to move on to the last part of the episode. I wanted to give a shout-out to a bunch of people in my life that I wanted to uh, you know, give you guys some exposure for with the, some of your ideas. So the first person I want to give a shout-out to is my wife, Dakota. She basically, uh, what her main job is, she's an esthetician, so she obviously does skin and shit like that. So if you ever need your eyebrows done or need to get a facial, get your face all clean and shit, hit up my wife, uh, Dakota Copper on Facebook. That's her name. And then she also is a jack of all trades. She is quite the artist. And by artist, I mean she makes amazing fluid art. Um, it's the trippiest fluid art I've ever seen. I really love it. She has like a whole awesome process on how she makes the art. She like puts paint in cups and mixes them up and pours it and like puts a torch to it. It's awesome. You got to check that out. Um, shoot me a message on Facebook if you want to get in contact with her. Uh, well, she doesn't really have like a platform or anything like that yet. But for now, if you're interested in seeing some of her work, just shoot me a message and I'll get back to you. Um, and then I wanted to give a shout out to my friend Aldrich uh, Mainz. I hope I'm not fucking your name up, man. I apologize. Um, I went to high school with Aldrich and he's been... Yeah, I love you too, Zeus. <laughs> He's been nice enough to um, do some of the technical stuff behind the scenes to make my sound a little bit better for free. And so I'm going to go ahead and give him a shout out. He runs a uh, photography business where I, I see his pictures all the time on his Facebook. He does pictures for like couples and, and, and uh, engagement photos and things like that. He's really awesome. He gets like drones and stuff and he takes pictures. I highly recommend following his uh, Facebook page. You can look him up uh at on facebook at hippograph studios that's hippograph studios and just once again if you want to know how to get more information on that just shoot me a message on facebook and then i want to give a shout out to my friend um madison she makes tapestries um tapestries are like really cool i don't know how to explain that. i'm gonna butcher the way to explain it but the way i i think of tapestries it's like a flag or something like that but she'll custom make them to like anything you like so if you have like a band you like or for a political movement or something like that she can make those they're pretty cool um she did one i i think it was during the amazon rain crisis that uh, rainforest crisis she made one and was donating the uh benefits to a charity that helped the rainforest so give uh her facebook a look it's at uh facebook uh, earth sun and moon delight uh, Madison. Yeah. So Madison makes tapestries. And then the last person I wanted to give a shout out to is my man, Matthew or AKA funk static. 
Uh, Matthew makes music. He's a fucking OG at this shit. I love I love the kind of music he makes. He makes a, like a real unique sound. But uh, go ahead and give Matthew a listen. And that's what I'm going to end the episode on. So check out Funk Static.